Colossians 2, verse 16 through 23, Paul is picking up his argument. And back in verse 8, if you recall, we looked at that um, a couple weeks ago. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul, he makes this this warning to the Colossians back in verse 8, and he has been uh, referencing these things that they're facing, philosophy, empty deceit, these things that depend uh, upon human tradition that are rooted in elemental spirits of the world. And his main charge there is these things are not according to Christ. And here in verse 16 through 23 this morning, he gives a little bit more detail to the type of false teaching that was being propagated among the Colossians. He gives us a little bit of insight and emphasis on the word little bit because there's some confusion amongst scholars as to what exactly was the deal. What exactly were they into here? And as we'll see in the text, it was some of it was rooted in. <coughs> excuse me. Some of it was rooted in Judaism, in old Jewish practice, and certainly had its its deriving some of its festivals and things like that, as he speaks to, from uh, Judaism. But then also there's kind of a mix of the surrounding pagan cultures that are weighing in on these uh, false teachers' doctrine. And so Paul gives us a little bit of insight, and we don't have a a real clear picture. We have just enough to know, and that's all that we need uh, to really get Paul's thrust of what he's saying. We don't need to know every single detail. But here we get Paul's argument. He is going to contrast, and and what he wants to do uh, with the Colossians is place this... uh, Christological lens before them. He wants to place a view in their mind that puts Christ at the center. And he wants them to see what they're considering these arguments from these false teachers. He wants them to see that through the lens of Christ. And he's going to speak to us of this in verse 17, where he kind of contrasts the shadow and the substance, is what he'll get at. But Paul's only point and really our only point that he wants to communicate this morning is that Jesus is the substance, that he is real, he is full, he is the reality of life. And so that's Paul's main point, that's what he's getting at this morning. And so as we come to uh, verse 16, let's keep that in mind as Paul writes to the Colossians. In verse 16, Paul says, he, he, he kind of picks up where he left off. If you, if you recall uh, back in verse uh, 15, he just finishes speaking about how Christ has triumphed over all rulers and authorities. He says he's disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And, and if you recall the last time that we looked at this passage, it's, we were talking about how, how Paul's painting this picture of Jesus coming into the city as a conquering general, as one who has defeated Satan, sin, and death. And he's the one who is being lauded and praised. He's the one that's being exalted in uh, this passage. And he says, because Jesus has conquered, because he has defeated, because he has made you alive together with him, in verse 16, Paul goes on and he says, therefore, Because that, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So what Paul's saying here to these Colossians is don't let anybody impose a a set of rules, a set of regulations, a program of, uh, you know, discipleship or development spiritually that doesn't have Christ at the center. Don't let these other people come in and because you've already been made alive together with him, because Jesus has already conquered all, don't let other people come in and, and try to confuse you. And he gives the two issues on which the basis uh, that these false teachers are using. 
He gives two. The first one is food and drink there. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon. So the second one is observing these uh, special religious holidays. You know, he, he mentions there uh, the festival, the new moon, the Sabbath. Those are all things that they were being told that they must observe uh, in order to kind of move up the ranks spiritually. If you want to be more spiritual, you will observe these things. So here, the first one with, the, with these, this idea of food and drink, what the false teachers are teaching is some sort of abstinence, some sort of, of removal from some types of food and drink. <clears throat> you know, some uh, kind of rooted in Jewish ceremonial law where there was certain types of animals and things like that you weren't allowed to eat. And later in verse 21, Paul's going to mention their rules uh, real quickly, and he does it in a mocking sense where he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You know, he's kind of just, what kind of rules are these? He, he's kind of saying there. But our text doesn't really give us, and, and historically, there's not a lot of we don't have anything that that is completely solid as to what exactly, what type of food or what type of drink. But we were we know that there are some types of drinks that are being prohibited. That you're you're not supposed to have these things. And also, um, as we'll see when it talks about asceticism, there it's probably combined with the sense that they were deeply involved in fasting and and wanted to to push that as a, a very spiritual uh, practice. So the second thing there is uh, that they're calling the Colossians to observe these special religious days. The false teachers, they are insisting, they are adamant that the Colossians uh, observe these holidays. And these holidays were probably, as I said, Jewish in origin. They had their roots in that culture, but also took on the practices of the surrounding culture as well. And Paul says, these things are not something to be brought under. There's not a reason for you to do this because Jesus is alive. He has made you alive together with him. He's conquered all, uh, all rulers and authorities. He's conquered everybody. And in verse 17, Paul goes on and he, he uses this. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. And I love that statement. Because what Paul's telling us here, he's telling the Colossians that these rules, these regulations, they're not the real thing. You're being called to practice them. And these uh, false teachers are offering you just a shadow. But Paul says that the substance, it belongs to Christ. These things are, are shadow. They're inferior to the real thing. They, are, they don't even come close to being uh, the, the real you know, thing that you can touch and feel, that you can, that you can um, experience. Nobody wants to experience a shadow. <coughs> and that's, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that, um, I, I forgot, we're going to be in Hebrews 10 first, so flip over to Hebrews 10, <laughs> since you already have your finger in Hebrews 1. But as Christians, we have a substance. Paul tells us that we have a substance, and the writer to the Hebrews tells us of this substance here in, uh, in Hebrews 10, this reality that we find in Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So I love what he says there. The shadow is insufficient. It looks, you know, it, it's a shadow of good things to come. It's, it's uh, just re really illuminated by the real thing, but it's never enough. Verse 2, otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the writer to the Hebrews is making this point 
that the, the shadow is insufficient. It's inferior to the real thing. But then look at verse 10, or excuse me, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. There's the shadow still. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What, what the writer of the Hebrews is saying there is that the shadow is insufficient. These blood and bulls and goats, they, they weren't comparable to the real thing. When Jesus made his one-time sacrifice, that was the real substance. And that took care of the problem of sin. And, it, and he points it out there. A single offering. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's what Paul's getting at here in Colossians 2. <clears throat> when he says that, that these things that are being offered are a shadow, that they're not the real thing. You're wanting to be more spiritual. You're wanting to, to go deeper and go to the next level. But Paul says, you're spinning your wheels. You're messing around with the shadow when you could have the real thing. You have the real thing available to you. You know, in, in a, it's comparable to uh, thinking about it this way. As I, was, as I was thinking about this, you know, in, in my house on the wall there, there's uh, in the entryway, we have those two pictures of the kids there. And uh, Corinne has done those, those silhouette type photos there, you know, where she uh, had them stand there and then sh uh, shined a light and then it, it cast their shadow onto the paper and then she traced the paper and then cut it out and it's in those frames. Now, I would not rather spend time with those framed silhouettes on the wall than my actual kids. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be like, oh yeah, this is so great, this, this shadow of my kids, you know, when they come over, I, I don't like introduce you to, to the silhouettes on the wall and be like, this is Caden and this is Ellie and they're so fun, you know, and you, you just don't get anything from that. But then when you meet them in person, it's a whole nother reality. You get to see them in, in, for who they are. You get to see, experience their personality and, and you get to, uh, you know, hear their laughter and play with them. You don't, get to, you don't get to glean those things from the shadow. And that's what Paul's trying to point out here for the Colossians. Th those things are going to be inferior. If you're trying to, to build your life up on, on this specific uh, shadow, you're, you're going to be left wanting. You're going to be disappointed because the shadow is not comparable to the substance, to real life, to Jesus, who is the reality. Now, as he makes that point, he goes on in verse 18 to then talk about these types of shadowy practices, these things that are insufficient, that are less than Jesus. In verse 18, he says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So the first thing there, he, he gives us a couple things, but the first thing there is that there, he's insisting on, on asceticism. Um, this idea of asceticism is uh, a practice. It's a, it's, it contains, this word contains several things kind of among it. These ascetic practices is really more of what it's speaking to. Uh, some of your translations may say a false humility. They're trying to, to uh, really trying to have something extra. They're trying to have a more spiritual situation by making themselves less by being like, oh, you know, um, we are causing bodily harm to ourselves. We are putting ourselves into uh, these self-denying practices. And, and that's what the word kind of uh, it encapsulates. It, it means it, it, it um, contains ideas about fasting, bodily discipline that um, was rooted in self-denial. 
And we're not talking about um, denying the old man like Paul talks about, or when Jesus talks about deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about uh, people who are trying to appear more spiritual or be more righteous as the result here. And and we see this kind of like, um, you know, taking place today in our culture and in different religions where people, uh, they withhold from certain things, even kind of to like harmful points, because they're trying to uh, please their God or, or they're trying to find favor. And, and so here there, there's these kind of self-denying practices. And, and part of the purpose of withholding uh, fasting was that they believed that these things opened up um, opportunity for visions, you know, like you would, you would have more, you were more likely to do this. And maybe that was the result of hallucinations or whatever sort of thing was happening here. But they were rooted in having these self-denying practices on the basis of trying to receive visions, trying to uh, prime themselves in a way to be more open to that. Now, the second thing that he mentions here is that there's the worship of angels. This phrase here, uh, there's a lot of um, discussion about it by scholars, but one of the main translations and what scholars think that uh, is more likely to be happening here, there's kind of two views, but one of the, the predominant view, it seems that this is more likely to mean worship offered to angels. So um, it's not worship of angels. There's another camp that believes it's worship of angels, that we are emulating their style of worship and saying, we were brought up into the heavenlies, you know, when we went into our vision because we were self-denying and we got to worship with the angels. You know, we had that vision and we were there. And so there's kind of one camp that believes that. Uh, And there's another camp that uh, the more predominant view is that these are uh, people who were worshiping angels. They were actually worshiping angels, and, and they were offering their worship to angels. And the, the predominant reason for people, uh, for, for scholars, having that view is because Paul's concern here is the superior, superiority, the preeminence of Christ over all spiritual beings, right? That's what he's, he's been saying. He's the firstborn of all creation, that nothing was, was made without him. He's before all things, and they all exist for him. He has said that, that uh, Christ is defeated every elemental spirit of this world. He is over all rulers and authorities, speaking of uh, the demonic realm, the angelic realm. And, and so Paul is making this point again and again, and, and he's making it because it seems that they're actually worshiping angels. Furthermore, uh, what happens here is... Uh, he additionally wants them to understand, or he additionally wants uh, the Colossians to fix their minds upon Jesus as he is superior superior over the angels. Uh, but secondarily, um, this worship offered to angels is rooted into what we saw in verse 8 uh, there in chapter 2. What it tells us is, lost my spot. There it is. Um, that these things are not according to Christ. These empty philosophies, these uh, empty deceit. These things are not according to Christ. And Paul, throughout the book of Colossians, has emphasized again and again that they, these false teachers have left the head of the body. So it doesn't, to me, it doesn't seem like as likely that they are caught up in worshiping with the angels because they would still be kind of worshiping God. And Paul's concern is not that they're not worshiping God. It's that they're being pushed away to uh, be distracted as these false teachers were. Um, If you flip over to Hebrews 1, this is kind of what Paul, he he kind of mirrors Hebrews 1 in this sense again here. Um, And this seems to be a similar concern and this is, this is the writer to the Hebrews. He makes a similar argument that Christ is greater than the angels. 
Hebrews 1, chapter 1, uh, verse 1, 1, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So very similar to Colossians 1, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You know, very chapter uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it's kind of mirroring that section there. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's radical. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So Christ above the angels. And then he gives these contrasts. I love these contrasts because uh, he says, "For w- to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels wings and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I love the contrast there, and and Paul mirrors the, the you know, the writing here to uh, Hebrews so closely that they're so uh, connected. And that's Paul's point here. This worship of angels is, is foolishness because Christ created the angels. The, this, uh, he's trying to show that Jesus is the substance. And I love how it even finishes there in Hebrews 1.14 saying that these angels, these ministering spirits are sent out to serve for the sake of those who are in inherent salvation. They're sent out to serve us, like for our sake. You know, um, Jesus is high and exalted above them, and they're sent out to uh, serve for our sake. And so Paul's making this point that Jesus is greater than the angels. He is the substance. He's not a shadow. He's not these, these angels. He's greater than that. But these false teachers are worshiping. They're caught up in this worship of angels. And even if they're caught up in worshiping with the angels, still, you know, it falls short of Christ. Now, the third thing he says there, that these people are going on in detail about visions, things seen in a vision. They're hung up on, on what they've seen, and they've been kind of relating these things endlessly, you know, sit down telling the same stories. It's like you sit down with somebody who has told you the same story a bunch of times again and again. It's like, I've heard it. We get it. You really want me to know about this. That's what's happening here with uh, these false teachers. They were kind of asserting their spiritual experiences, you know, trying to hold them over others' heads and being like, well, if you were only as spiritual as I am, if you would experience these things and, you know, you want to if you listen to what I say, I can bring you there. I can bring you to have these same type of amazing moments where you're caught up into the heavens and, you know, you can worship and have these these deep moments with God that no one else can have. But Paul says that's false because we all have the fullness of the Godhead bodily in Christ who's available. You can't have any more fullness than what you're already full. And so... These people are going on 
in detail about visions, and they're puffed up without reason. They're arrogant. They are inflated, proud. And Paul says there's not really any point to being puffed up. It's without reason, he tells us, because their arrogance, their pride, is rooted in a sensuous mind. Some of your translations might say unspiritual mind, and I think that's a good way to communicate uh, what Paul's getting at here, because when we think about something being unspiritual, when we think about something being sensuous, in the sense that Paul's speaking of here, having this unspiritual mind, he's getting at something about having a mindset, having thoughts that belong to this world, and as the byproduct of of having your mind rooted here in this world, focused here in this world, you're not taking into uh, consideration what God has to say. You're not considering the spiritual realm and, and the truth of who Jesus is. You're only focused on this earth, this life. Their minds, they're thinking about things. They're trying to have these spiritual practices. He's recognizing that, but their minds aren't properly calibrated. It doesn't matter if you have a mind and you're using it if it doesn't work right. You know, if you have, if you have a compass, but you have it sitting next to magnets and it becomes all demagnetized, it's worthless. It'll point north, but that doesn't really matter if it's not really north. There's not a, a, you know, point to taking an orientation on a compass if, if you don't actually have the right direction, if it's not actually pointing north. There's not a point to, uh, you know, you can't actually use a level and draw a straight line if the actual uh, bubble inside the level, if that thing is turned at a weird angle and you can't lay it flat, you have to lay it at a side and then draw a weird line and it just doesn't work out. You got to have your compass calibrated. You got to have it correct because if you have a false reading, if your compass, if your uh, navigation is off, by just the smallest bit, in just a little while, you're like miles and miles away from your destination. A small deviation just puts you way off course. It, you know, you go, you go off course for five minutes, you only have to make a short detour back. But if you go off course for an hour, you're like hundreds of miles in the wrong direction. You got to redirect it's important, Paul tells us, to have a correct mind. And he says the primary, his greatest accusation towards these false teachers in verse 19, here is this, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. So the greatest problem that Paul sees with them is and the root of their problem is that they're not holding fast to the head. Now, these false teachers, they were apparently professing Christians. They had, uh, you know, their roots in Judaism and were kind of incorporating some of these things. But because they were so uh, distracted by these rules and regulations, because they were so caught up with you know, spiritual beings and having visions and, uh, you know, all of these different practices, they've put themselves in a place where they've been distracted from the only thing that matters, the head. Christ, who is the head of the body, uh, Colossians tells us. They've become so distracted with all these other things that they're, they're not even connected. That's his problem. You can't be nourished. You can't be knit together with the rest of the body. You can't grow if you're disconnected from the head. Ephesians 4.15 tells us, uh, it mirrors what Paul writes here. He, he mirrors it again in uh, Ephesians 4.15. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly 
makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Christ is the head. He is the one that holds the whole body together. He's the one that nourishes it. He's the one who joins us together and equips each joint, each ligament. And this growth comes. The body of Christ grows as its members support one another, love one another, learn from each other. But Paul's main point here in Colossians 2 is not that we help each other in the body of Christ, but that Jesus is the one who ultimately provides the growth. He says this grows with a growth that's from God. We're connected when we are connected to the head. We're a part of the same body. We're held together by these ligaments and joints. But the body grows because it's God causing it to grow, because we're connected to Christ. If you become disconnected, then your growth stops. If you are separated from the body, then you wither. John 15, abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anybody does not abide in me, he is like a branch that is cut off. And when it's cut off, it withers. It's separated. It dies. But if you abide in the vine, you grow, you have life, you bear much fruit, Jesus tells us. And so Paul with the Colossians here, is reminding them the problem is, is that these false teachers have left, they've left being connected to Jesus. Now, he reminds them, and, and this is an important thing in verse 20, something that we skip over, he reminds them and reminds us, <clears throat> if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So Paul reminds the Colossians, you died. <laughs> Jesus is the only one who can raise the dead. He's the only one who has resurrected. Paul isn't saying here, like, you know, you died and with Christ, and one day when you die, you're going to be resurrected. He's saying, you really did die with Christ, I just told you a couple verses earlier, you really were buried with him and you were raised with him. You were made alive. He's highlighting that Jesus is alive and that he has made you and I alive when we place our trust in him. He's raised us from the dead. He's highlighting that these elemental spirits of the world have not done that. He has not, they, they have not conquered death. Jesus has. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Like, why are you just placing unnecessary and ungodly restrictions upon yourself? You do not need that. And so he, he provides some examples here of the type of rules that they were trying to impose on these Colossian Christians. Verse 21, he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now, I love, I, I, in my mind, I have Paul like using the obnoxious kid mocking voice when he says this. I hope that the reader, that there was some sort of punctuation when it was read to the Colossians, that there was like some sort of like sarcastic mocking voice tone here. It would have been great, you know, like some great actor to deliver that line. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I'm not good enough to, to try it. But Paul's giving us his kind of own quick paraphrase about what these rules were about. You know, here it is. Don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. And Paul's not saying like you can't, you know, eat all, you know, eat or drink anything. He's not trying to say that. He's saying that this is this is pointless. He's mocking their approach. He's, he's mocking these things and saying these things are pointless. And he goes on to, to remark that in verse 22. He says, referring to things that all perish as they are used. He's like, you guys are so obsessed with something that's going to even just run out. That's going to run out here. It's so temporal that it even goes away when you use it. It has no lasting value at all. 
It doesn't even last years. It lasts days, months, if that. And so he says two things about these rules in verse 22. They have to do with things that all perish as they are used, and they are according to human precepts and teachings. Very similar to what he said in verse 8, according to human tradition. And the false teachers taught that these rules, these, these requirements, these practices, <clears throat> that they taught that these external changes that you had to make, you had to be a part of this fasting and, you know, this harm kind of in a sense to the body. You had to be self-denying uh, to a great extreme. You had to uh, follow these rules where you, where you weren't allowed to touch and, and uh, certain types of food or things. You weren't allowed to eat certain types of, of meals, certain types of meat, and certain types of drink. And they're teaching that these these rules had to be followed in order to be truly spiritual. You had to, you had to follow these things in order to, to come to a place where you are enlightened and when you have the, the full revelation. And sadly, I mean, that's, it seems like a lot of our world today is filled with similar things. You know, I, I know, um, I know people who are who are practicing kind of different religions and um, and are withholding from certain things in the sincere belief that like they will have more peace in their life if they don't participate in eating these certain things or if you have these certain types of of foods or or you um, are around you know if you don't have these certain types of candles, or you are around a, a certain type of environment that will completely change, uh, you know, your path in life. And you'll be a cleaner, more healthy person in your, you know, in your ambiance, in your aura, if you participate in these things. And it's sad because Jesus tells us that that's, not the case. In Mark 7, Jesus is talking to the, to the Pharisees, and they're all upset. You know, they're all upset about these, about the, I mean, they're, all, they're always upset with Jesus, but they're upset about, uh, you know, some food that the disciples had, and um, You know, they're like, they're not following the, the ceremonial cleansing laws. They're, they're touching things that they shouldn't be touching, and they're eating things that they shouldn't be eating. And they're not washing. And Jesus tells them in Mark 7, verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus knows that it's not just these external things. Somehow, if, if you withhold from eating a certain type of food, if you are uh, putting yourself in a place where you're denying your body uh, you know, in extreme ways in, you know, to find peace, that, that, that's going to make you a better person. Jesus knows that that's not the case. He tells them nothing going into a person it's going to defile them. It's the things that come out of a person are what defile them. And, and so it's not these external circumstances. It's an internal problem. You can't, use, you can't use withholding a certain type of food to fix an inward problem. It's not going to, it's not going to work. <clears throat> now, Paul says that these ascetic practices they have a reputation for wisdom in the culture. And that's certainly the case here, right? We see it, you know, different blogs, different YouTube videos. It goes on Facebook. Everyone's like, oh, you should try this practice. You should do this. And this is really what's going to give you peace in your life. They have an appearance of wisdom, Paul tells us in verse 23. They indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, I mean, and that's, 
that's the truth here in our day and age, and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These things lack a true wisdom. They have an appearance, a reputation of wisdom, but they don't have the substance. They lack true wisdom. They're, uh, you know, just a front. True wisdom is found in Jesus alone. Paul tells us in Colossians 2, verse 3, just a couple of verses earlier, in Jesus are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's a true wisdom and a false wisdom, and this true wisdom is found in Christ. But many people today are persuaded by self-made religion. It means worship that is freely chosen. Uh, the, the false teachers at the time, they were most likely using this to uh, gain praise by, being like, by choosing this self-made religion to the point where they were showing that they had these uh, intense practices. You know, we're more spiritual because we're doing these things. And it goes on to, Paul goes on to elaborate through talking about asceticism and severity to the body. It's talking about uh, uh, those practices that we talked about earlier, those disciplines of fasting and avoiding certain foods and drink and uh, causing this severity to the body. And then in verse 11, Paul tells the Colossians, that Christ already dwelt, uh, he dealt with their flesh because they couldn't. That's what he, he tells us here in 23. These things, these practices are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. But look at what he's already told them in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. If, if you want to stop the indulgence of the flesh, Jesus is the one who can stop it. He's the one who put off that body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You want to deal with your flesh, the indulgence of your flesh? Jesus dealt with it. That's Paul's answer. These other things, they're not going to work. You're working on something that's already done. Jesus dealt with it. Paul speaks similarly in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. He says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit jesus has done what we could not do We could not keep the law. We were weakened by the flesh. If the law was good enough to deal with our indulgence of the flesh, then Jesus need not have come. But we could not do it, he tells us, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He dealt with it because we could not. So no number of ascetic practices fasting, starvation, you know, this uh, bodily suffering. No uh, compilation of these things is going to be helpful in dealing with an internal problem. When Jesus told the Pharisees in Mark 7 that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him, he was speaking of the problem of the heart. In verse 21 of Mark 7, he goes on, to elaborate before the Pharisees. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, 
come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. I don't think that you're going to cure, you know, immorality, theft, murder with worship of angels or bragging about your visions. It's just not going to happen. It's a heart change. You need a heart transplant. That's what Paul uh, tells us. It's what Mark writes of what Jesus has said. It's from within, out of the heart of man. That's the problem. And so you can't, when you need, when you need to deal with the reality of the heart of man, you can't deal with it with something that is but a shadow. You can't deal with it with, you know, these practices. You can't deal with it, you know, in the self-help section in Barnes & Noble. No matter how many books you read, no matter how many uh, lectures you listen to, no matter how many podcasts that you subscribe to, no number of things is going to offer what Jesus offers. A brand new heart. He says, uh, you know, Scripture tells us that when we place our our faith in Christ, that the old has passed away and that all things become new. He's made all things new. Not repaired, not patched up, duct taped together, not like replacing it one bit at a time. It's not like, you know, it's not like the, our hearts don't become the Bay Bridge. We're like, oh, we thought we made something new, but then we, you know, broke it a little bit and we got to replace the bolts and like it's going to be over this period of time. You're, you're brand new. You just get a new one completely. You're, you get something completely new, completely pure, because Jesus has made you a new creation, not a refurbished creation, not a recycled creation, new. That's what he has done. And that's what, what Paul wants the Colossians to understand, what he wants us to understand. And, and as he gets into uh, chapter 3 next week, he's going to talk about how we've put off the flesh. Jesus has put off this uncircumcision, right? We've put off the flesh through the circumcision that is from Christ, but now we must put on Christ. We take off that flesh like a garment that uh, Christ has done for us, and now we are given new righteousness, new robes that are Christ. He will lead us into that and lead the Colossians into that. And so that's what, what he wants us to see, what, what we want to see this morning as we come to the text, that we're not, we don't want to be confused and faked out. We don't want to be uh, distracted by a facade, but we want the real thing, not the shadow, but the substance, the reality and Jesus is that only true reality. He's the only one who can meet our deepest needs, that he can fill our deepest desire. He's the only one that can deal with the problem of sin and pain. He is the only one who can deal with this body of flesh. None of these things will fix it. Only Jesus will fix it. He's the only one. And that's what Paul points us to. Be connected to the head who is Christ. He is the substance. The substance belongs to Christ. When it talks about there, these things are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Not only is it saying that Jesus is the reality, that he is the actual thing. He's not a shadow, but he's what you're actually going for. That word there is interesting because that word there, it, um, it's, the, it's the word soma. What he, what we, the word that we use for the body when it talks about the body of Christ. So not only is Jesus that the substance, not only is he the reality, but the, the substance belongs to him. It's kind of Paul simultaneously saying that 
he's not the shadow that that he's not the shadow but he is the reality and the substance the reality belongs to him that same word it's kind of like a play on words a double a double meaning there not only is jesus the reality but the body belongs to christ is what uh, is kind of being communicated there as well he's owning us we don't belong to the shadow we belong to the substance we belong to the reality and so in that sense because we belong to him, because that's Paul's goal to remind the Colossians and to remind us that we belong to him, that we are his forever because of his sacrifice at the cross. He wants to knit us together in love as that body, as joints and ligaments around the work of Christ. And so I'm thankful for his words here. And let's... um, Let's pray and take um, some time to be connected as a body, as we worship uh, together here, Christ, for what he has done, for who he is. Lord, we're thankful for your good work upon the cross and your faithfulness to us. Lord, we're thankful that you have saved, you have redeemed us, Lord, we could not be redeemed. We could not be saved any other way. There's not one one thing, one practice that could have done what you have done. And so we're thankful, Lord, that you have not left us to figure it out on our own, but because the, the law could not be kept by our weakened flesh. Lord, you came in flesh and dwelt among us. And you lived a perfect life here in our place, facing our death, taking our sin, so that we might be raised with you again and have new life. We're thankful that you've made us alive together with Jesus and that we participate in that baptism and in that resurrection and that we get to be a part of your new family. And so, Lord, as we worship together, call us to worship together as your family, as we lift our hearts, our hands, and our voices to you this morning. May you be glorified. We love you. Amen.